Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this evening. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening and uh, greetings from very snowy South Dakota. I, it's going to get worse before it gets better, buddy. That's the downside of living in this area though. Uh, the world you know what my husky loves it though you should see him playing out there he just he just really really enjoys the snow he's all over the place is he extremely stubborn i had a husky that was it was just the most they're the most stubborn animals love them to death but just very stubborn dogs i'm not sure stubborn is the right thing he has to be uh convinced of the merits of doing something <laughs> so uh the dog breed is is really meant for someone that's looking to to have a friend be an equal, not to be a master. So if you're trying to control mm. and like command your husky, you're looking at the wrong type of dog. Oh, fair enough. Well, I'll stick to German shepherds. All right, head into some feedback. Absolutely. All right, our first feedback is from Steve. Steve, you got some feedback from your script problem. Some of it, some very helpful. Others of it, people forgot what you do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> we uh, some feedback is an understatement we got a slew of feedback and i wanted to thank everybody who sent it in there were so many people that uh, took some time to respond that uh, i couldn't call everybody out by name but we did have last week i had mentioned i believe it was uh hank that had said oh well maybe it's a problem with the shell and and that got me thinking about um, the differences between shells and so i ended up tracking down my own problem by using the set X command. So for the people that are not familiar with uh, bash, if you use set minus X, what will happen is every time you run a command, it's going to put some level of debug information out. In my case, um, what was happening was in bash 4.x, the variable was resolving it's kind of hard to explain and I'll put it in the show notes, but essentially what was happening was it was resolving the variable, but was putting a leading dollar sign in front of, of the actual, um, <laughs> the actual value, your value variable name. Yeah. It was, it was changing the, the variable and it wasn't doing that in bash version five. And so, uh, I tracked that down as, Hmm, I couldn't, I couldn't solve that problem. No amount of escaping it would, would solve the problem of it adding a leading dollar sign. So like I said, I'll put something in the show notes to to um, make it more clear as to what was happening. But I just wanted to make sure that um, I acknowledged everybody that took the time to write in. So thank you very much. Um, Can you talk and, a little bit about the set plus X minus X? Yeah, so like I said, the, the set X command, it's used for doing some debugging in Bash. So if you need some more... Um, information on what commands are going to do if you put set minus x and hit enter essentially it modifies something in the shell and the shell will start doing things like 
it's going to echo the command before it runs the command. It still runs the command, so there's no pausing. It just lets you know what's going to happen. So in the case of passing shell variables, you can see whether or not it's resolving the variables um, appropriately. And so that's part of what, what I found. If you type set plus X, it turns the debugging off because you don't, you don't want to leave that active on your shell. It lets you see what's inside of those variable names. Absolutely. Uh, that's a cool trick. I like it. Kevin writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. In a previous episode, you made an offhand comment that interested me. Could you please explain how AltaSpeed transitioned to runbooks from wiki pages? Are you using runbooks in the general ITIL definition? Any links to techtarget.com? Or are you using a specific automation platform that use the general term runbook as well, like runbook.readthedocs? Io. Thanks, Kevin. So a combination of both. So Steve actually turned me on to this. And this, this idea of runbooks is you can send any human being to recreate a process that was previously created. And interestingly enough, we didn't start with technical stuff. We actually started with things like, hey, we're going to this client and they're 14 hours away. We should probably figure out what all we need to pack before we leave, because it's always the thing we get out to the site and we forgot one or two things. So that's actually where it started. Very untechnical in nature. And then as I was talking to Steve, he said, well, do you have a runbook for that? You would do, oh, okay. Well, and so we just kind of expanded it. So the when we talk about runbooks specifically, we are talking about, I looked at the link that you sent, the manual process where it's a human being and every step necessary, even if the person doesn't understand. And the process that we used, which is exemplified in greater detail in the uh, AltaSpeed episode that we did earlier this year, um, is we have one person define a process and they'll try a bunch of different things during the experimentation phase. They'll land on what they like. Then they write it up as, as a draft as here's how I think you should do it. And then somebody else will perform it and then give them feedback. Hey, this part isn't clear. I don't understand how this works. Once that has been run by two or more people, now we have assurance that there's business continuity, that if that person leaves, we can pick up where they, they left off. So that in, in its, in its, in at Ulta speed, when we talk about a run book, Everything that is necessary to complete a given task by somebody who doesn't have any background knowledge. Now, we also use automation platforms like Ansible, and almost everything, if we deploy it these days, is being done with Ansible because it is a layer of abstraction. It allows us to do the work one time and then replicate it so that every time we have a new client that says, hey, I want a C file instance, no problem. Point at the server they want, execute the playbook, a C file server appears. And it's a very scalable way to do things. But again, going back to this idea that you might not have ever run an Ansible playbook before. And oh, by the way, Ansible is far from standard. Ansible itself is standardized, but people's implementation of Ansible is far from standardized. So we've kind of adopted our own way of building an Ansible template. And then we, when we come up with a project, we kind of fill it into the template and make that a playbook. I think it's on Ansible. I think all that stuff is on is it Ansible Universe or something like that? And so you can go find it, and it's certainly available on AltaSpeed's GitLab pages. Um, and we would gladly share any of those runbooks or those Ansible playbooks if you're interested in one. Um, but that's kind of how we that's how we use it, and so we use both runbooks for a manual process, playbooks for automated, and then we have every playbook has a runbook. So if you've not ever executed that before or don't know how we standardize on those things, you could having never used Ansible before, read through, monkey see, monkey do, make it work. Our second email comes in from Emmanuel. Emmanuel writes in and says, Hi guys, I'm a newbie to Linux, but I've been listening to your show on and off for some years. 
I've learned a lot just from listening. I have two questions. I inherited an IBM system X3550 M41U without the hard drives, and I'm wondering what kind of useful projects I can use it for. Something like installing Linux on it or an exercise that will help increase my knowledge. Second, does the IBM 3650 M32U have any resale value or is it too old to be of any use? I would kindly appreciate any input on this issue. Thanks, Emmanuel. So, Steve, your thoughts on what you would do with some fairly old machines. Are they useful? Are they junk? Hmm. Well, everything is useful for something. I mean, if you're just kind of looking to kick the tires with something, anything that turns on would be useful. I mean, we don't have any kind of explanation as to what went into it. Like, the, the 3550 M4s can take you know, uh, Xeon E5 2600 V2 processors and, and then down, right? So we don't know what kind of processors there are. We don't know how much RAM is in there. Yeah. We also don't know, is this meant to be turned on all the time? Because these guys will suck down the power being from mm, circa 2013, 2014. They're not going to be very power efficient. So if you're talking about spinning up a lab and learning to do some stuff and shutting it down, absolutely. I mean, I've got some some stuff that's from let's say 2016 so little newer than this sucks down the power but it does its job like i spin it up i play around with vsphere and then i shut it down so a couple of things that i've used older machines for oftentimes we'll get called in and a client will say i want new machines we ask them what do you want to do with the old ones they say get them out of here we don't want them i'm kind of a pack rat and i'm I'm, I'm, I'm also kind of a thrifty guy. So when I come across perfectly usable machines, even when they're 10 years old, 15 years old, I still struggle to throw them away, probably somewhat to my own um, demise. But some of the things that I'll do with them is, so if nothing else, I use them as point of presence machines. Hey, here's a place I would just like to have a box. So set it up with Tink, set it up with OpenVPN, set it up with something and drop it off at a place. Maybe it's a parent's house. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a place that somebody is just willing to let you store a box and you can have a presence with maybe some storage sitting somewhere else. Um, a backup server. Backup servers, like Steve said, the primary drawback to older servers is not that they don't work because they Oftentimes, you're not asking them to do a whole heck of a lot more today than you were five years ago or 10 years ago, but they're just not as power efficient as if you bought a new server. That being said, sometimes having a backup server that's in power inefficient is better than having no backup server at all. So the other thing we'll do oftentimes, repurpose one as a backup server, throw a couple of disks in there, share it out over NFS and write data to it. And it can be a really inexpensive way to repurpose some spare hard drives for some extra storage. Um, I, ca I can't really, th I wouldn't try to resell it. I, I don't, I mean, you, you might get a hundred bucks for it, 200 bucks, something like that. But mostly I think the investment you could make a manual is in a manual learn, go set something up on it and play with it. If you're interested in kind of what the resale value is, there's a website out there called lab gopher. Now they won't likely have the IBM system X on there, but what it will do is give you an idea of how much money is like involved in similar generation hardware, like what you can expect. Okay. Like Noah, I think you'd be lucky to get a hundred, 150 bucks. It depends on how much Ram is in there and stuff like that. Cause you might sometimes scalping the Ram out of it is mm. worth more than just trying to sell the entire box between the shipping and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a cool site. Lab Gopher. We'll include a show, uh, a link in the show notes. So you can check it out. Our third email comes in from, I hope I pronounce this right. Ebel. 
Dear friends, hi. I have quite a few five and six year old SATA drives, one terabyte and two terabyte total, about 10 terabytes in disks or 10 disks total. SmartD reports they're in perfect condition with no errors at all. I had to replace them a couple of setups due to disk usage, free space running low. And I was thinking, is it worth the effort, time and money and power consumption, noise, etc., to create a self-hosted NAS with all of them and finally just replace them with a couple of large disks and get it done? In general, I hate throwing hardware away that's in working or collecting dust for storage somewhere. But I don't know if there are any benefits. Any thoughts? Thanks in advance. So, Steve, what would you do? Would you centralize your storage or would you keep hammering on uh, on external old hard drives? I probably would put these in mirrored pairs. So I I would probably take the uh, if if I didn't have a need for a specific amount of storage, I probably mm -hmm. would would do my best to put these in mirrored Z vols so that, um, you know, when one of them drops off because they're old, when mm -hmm. one of them drops off, you don't lose the data that's on them. And it gives you some practice with that. If it's for actual storage purposes, as in you have some significant data or performance is an issue. Mm, I don't like old drives. Like I try to retire my drives after three or four years. And I always, always have one or two unopened hard drives sitting on my shelf waiting to mm. pop in. I tell you what I might do. I might take, I might go with the suggestion of buying some new disks and just being done with it. And then that way you've got centralized storage. You've got some disks that you hopefully can rely on. Uh, and then what I would do is I would take these disks and I might turn them into backup disks and copy the data from your new file storage off. If you're right and they're old and they do fall over, you've just lost your backup and your presumably your primary is still in working order. You, in this case, you've not thrown anything away. You've repurposed it and your day-to-day -day writes and reads are all happening on new disks. So that might be a thought as well. Our fourth email comes in from Keith. Keith writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. In episode 311, you answered a question about bandwidth requirements. I have a question about how I could measure my internet speed so I know that I'm getting the full speed from the ISP. I have about 400 megabits down and I want to make sure that I can use the full amount. Thanks for your knowledge, Keith. So, Steve, this is actually interesting because he, he alludes into something that maybe a lot of people don't recognize. It's probably not in your best interest if you're trying to determine what your ISP is truly capable of moving bits across the Internet to go to speedtest.net, is it? No. So most ISPs will do one of two or both kind of. Uh, I don't want to say tricky because there's nothing tricky about it. They just don't announce it. But things on their network. So one, they will prioritize the speedtest.net packets. This is a very common practice. That means that that traffic will go through regardless of what it is, what your experience is going to be like going to say Facebook. In my ISP's case, they actually store, they have a speedtest.net in my city in their data center. So that means when I run a test there, all that tells me is how quickly do I get to their data center? It doesn't give me any kind of barometer as to how I can interact with the rest of the internet. What do you like in as an alternative to uh, speed test? So I use a site called speedof.me. Um, it's a really simple site. It's pretty basic. It doesn't need to have... Uh, Back in the day, speedtest.net used to have to have plugins, and if you run it on your phone, they want to 
it won't run in the browser because it wants you to run the app, whereas speedtest.net is just an HTML5 app. Um, and because it's relatively unknown, it's unlikely that the ISPs are going to be doing any kind of traffic shaping around it. So I use a site called testmy.net, and right from their site, testmy.net is a powerful broadband test that will test your internet, calculate your transfer speed, and output accurate, reliable, easy to understand results. Testmy.net is an independent third party and is not affiliated with your internet service provider. Our results are unbiased because Testmy.net has no vested interest in the outcome of your speed test. We work with internet consumers, not internet providers. First, to offer the ability to log test results, test upload speed, and automatically test internet connection, Testmy.net has been pioneering bandwidth speed testing since 1996. So I really like it. Very simple. Runs in the web browser. You can do just upload. You can do just download. You can do latency or you can do the full, uh, full mamma jamma. And yeah, works really well. And they don't have any local servers in your city. So it offers a real example across testing across the internet and saves us the trouble of having to set up like iPerf on DigitalOcean to do the test or something like that. Sleuth writes in for the questions bot. Again, you can join the chat room 24-7-365, geeklab.ninja, and ask Marlin by doing colon questions, linuxdelta.com. He asks, hi, Noah and Steve. I recently set up a ZFS storage pool to back the applications I run in my home lab. I have two questions after switching over to ZFS. For context, my ZFS pool is about two four-terabyte hard drives, one-terabyte SSD, and an L2 ARC about 500 gigabytes of SSD Zill. My first question is, what is a good way to monitor health of my drives? ZFS doesn't appear to give much view into the inner workings of how full each caching drive is and how data is moving around the ZFS pool. What is a good way to know when my Zill or other caching drives are getting full? Or is there a tool to see how my data is flowing within ZFS? Steve, your thoughts. So I guess my first thought is if we're really worried about uh, how the how the system is doing. I know that ZFS can be set up to send out like alerts when it is encountering problems. Mm -hmm. So um, that that would be the first step. So that doesn't that doesn't address the questions of like how do I know if my Zill is full or my L two arc is is getting there. Right. So uh, for the L two arc, it's not really that important. Um, because that's essentially just a hot cache of of keeping moving things off of disk into into ram or in this case onto an ssd so that the faster the more used files will be accessed faster okay. so if that gets wiped out that's not that big of a deal because if you rebooted your server and the server is now accessing different files it zfs is going to rebuild your l2 arc based on what the current demand on the files are. So, so it's, the whole it's kind, purpose. It's kind of like compromised RAM. Yeah, it's it's kind of like compromised RAM. Um, and the purpose of that is because, the so the thought of the L2 arc is that you have an arc, the arc exists in whatever RAM you have, and the L2 arc is a spillover for that. Got it. So if you don't have enough RAM, or you've only dedicated a small portion of the RAM to the arc, the L2 arc supplements that by moving stuff onto a faster disk, um, and it just kind of helps speed things up in general. Uh, when you're talking about the Zill, mm -hmm. that becomes a a different um, situation altogether. 
generally speaking from the documentation the zill doesn't really fill up like they they don't even recommend using like 20 gigs or something like that because your zfs intent log is is not meant to be huge if it if it gets large it means you've got a problem somewhere like the whole purpose of the intent log is to tell is to essentially ensure write consistency because zfs is a a copy on write file system what that means is if i'm making a change to a file instead of writing over the original file it starts a new a new block and writes to the new block right. once that new block is confirmed then it basically removes the link the the inode link for lack of a better way of putting it to the old block and so you end up with you still you end up with two copies on your disk until that first one gets overwritten so the zfs intent log it's the it helps to track have i completed my write mm. that's what the whole purpose of that is because when you've got various uh, applications across the network for example mm -hmm. wanting to synchronously write to your drive that's going to slow things down if it's waiting for your spinning disks to come back and say yes i've written to it if if you have the intent log moved off onto the SSD, what it allows you to do is process the request faster. So if you've got asynchronous uh, or synchronous write requests or read requests, mm -hmm. essentially ZFS can say, I'm done because it stored it on this SSD and will eventually move that off into the onto the spinning disk. If you want your question answered or you have thoughts or follow-up, we invite you to write in live at asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The Coreboot Project has joined the Open Source Firmware Foundation. The Linux Foundation has announced a partnership with Rancher Government Solutions. OpenSUSE is considering phasing out support for older 64-bit processors. The Orange Pie Maker has plans to release an Arch-based Linux distribution in the future. Wine 7.22 has been released with both 32-bit and 64-bit improvements. Version 3.4 of Red Hat's Stratus storage solution has come out. LibreOffice 7.4.3, the open-source software suite, has been released with 100 bug fixes. Qt Creator 9 has come out with both C++ and QML improvements. Valve's Proton 7.0-5 release brings support for an additional 14 games to Linux and SteamOS. Alpine 3.17 has been released. Tails 5.7 has come out and adds a new metadata cleaner tool and the latest Tor updates. Clam AV version 1 LTS has been released. And Kata OS, an operating system for embedded machine learning hardware from Google, has been made available for download by the Google AmbiML team. And another artificial intelligence news, Stable Diffusion 2.0 is now available as open source software. It's the second week of our storage roundtable. Joining us for the second week is Steve Ovens of Red Hat, Peter Denart of AltaSpeed, Kenny Schmidt of AltaSpeed, and of course myself and Patrick Emerson from New Spring Church. So I want to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, Patrick, you started with a Cohesity appliance. You then went to an Alma Linux box, and ultimately you wound up on 45 drives. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? We started with a Cohesity server, and uh, that's a clustered file system. But when we put it in, we didn't upgrade our network gear, so we had the clustered file system running off a 
or 10 gigabit network. And uh, so you have five different nodes that are all trying to do basically the hard drive speakings between each other across your network that you're also trying to download the data. It, it kind of brought us to our knees, our, uh, our 10 gigabit network connection to the main file server was one gigabit at best. And I don't think that's Cohesti's fault. I think it's our network fabric. We didn't, we didn't buy and design that correctly. That made it where we couldn't edit video off the servers. Everybody had these little dangly drives hanging off their computer. And I just saw it as a data nightmare. And so I proposed to the board, hey, can we, can we build another server even though we bought one just uh, a year and a half ago? But can we build one? Uh, and, and they were expecting, you know, the uh, number to be six figures. And I come in with a 45 drive server that cost a third of what we spent on the cohesity and got 10 times the performance out of it. Everybody loved it. But you know, Patrick, I'm sure the support that you got from cohesity was many, many times what you got from that of 45 drives. I'm sure those guys weren't willing to help you at all. The guys at 45 drives are incredible. I can't say enough good about them. Uh, you know, they, you see that they're, uh, out there taking care of a lot of YouTubers and stuff like that. But I call them up. They, they know me by name. They, uh, they take my problems on, uh, even if it's not, uh, explicitly their fault. You know, I work in a very mixed environment of windows, Linux and, and Mac OS. Uh, and we have all sorts of issues and they just work hard to handle it. They, they've been great. Okay, so you got a custom server for less money, better customer service. It sounds like there's not much to like with 45 drives. How about ZFS? Were they able to do ZFS? And if so, what did that process look like? And what do you think of it? Oh, yeah, ZFS, they've built uh, really neat cockpit modules uh, that uh, bring ZFS into cockpit. And if you haven't used cockpit to manage a Linux server, you've got to do it. And uh, they actually are open sourcing that. So you can literally go to scripts.45drives.com and take a base Ubuntu uh, download and uh, run their script on it. And it'll set up the cockpit interface and everything for you. Uh, I, I can't say enough good about it. it uh, then they... You know, you pay to have them help you set it up or you can set it up on your own. And on one of the servers, I said, hey, I'm going to try setting this up on my own. And then if it doesn't work out, can I just pay to have you help me set it up? And, you know, it doesn't take too long for me to get into something where I say, <laughs> well, I might be all right here, but I better call in for help. So I raise the white flag and say, yeah, let me go ahead and pay for that. And then they jump right in and, and got me all set up. But took them an afternoon when I spent three three or four days trying to work out on my own. So you have a combination of both TrueNAS appliances and 45 drive, appli uh, 45 drive appliances. Do I mean, do I hear you saying that you can use the 45 drive software, you can use ZFS you, without actually purchasing a drive for, or excuse me, a server from 45 drives? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just uh, runs right on the Ubuntu 
software. Now, I'm sure that there's some tuning and stuff like that that is done for their hardware, but really, 45 drives hardware is just uh, super micro servers uh, with, you know, uh, HBA modules plugged in. Uh, their real claim to fame is uh, how easy they make putting the drives in the server itself and, and all the design that they did that way. Uh, yeah, if you're looking at a new server, I'd say putting them in as a contender on uh, you know, where to look first. How big was the 45 drive server that you purchased and what RAID Z configuration are you using? I actually put 12, 18 terabyte drives. I, I got the Q45 server, which will do 45 drives, but I did it in a hybrid. So I actually took out of a 15 drive bay, they, they slot in a small section so that you can put in, um, I think it's 12, solid state drives in and so i've actually i think it's like 48 drives you can put in this machine steve i'm going to ask you the same question what uh zfs configuration or raid z configuration do you use and why so like i said i have i have a bunch of pools and it depends on the purpose of the pool which is which should dictate to everybody how they do it okay one one thing should not rule everything you should you should be purpose built for whatever you're doing with the computer. Um, so when I when it's really important stuff, I use the the mirrored stripes. So I have, you know, I guess it's Z10. I'm not exactly sure how they phrase that, but it's mirrored stripes. Okay. Um, when I need bigger, it, it depends on how wide the, the pool is. If it's just four or five, I will do like a RAID Z. Um, now, if you listen to Jim Salter, he'll talk about how uh, modern drives will, it's, there's a chance that during the resilvering process, so you lose a disc and you're putting another one in, during that process, it's going to beat up on your discs so badly that you might drop another one, which could be true if all the drives are approximately the same age. Mm. It's less likely if you kind of rotate through them. So when I buy, I told you I have two cold uh, standbys. Mm-hmm. When I buy them, they tend to be the next size up. So like I will have 10, like right now I'm on 10 terabyte drives and I've got 12s sitting on my shelf right now. And that's the way that I kind of make sure that my storage gets upgraded. Um, ultimately, in terms of the configuration, if you're using spinning disks versus SSDs, that makes a difference in terms of how you lay down the data and, and what you're doing with it. And for specific configurations, it really is, it should be, um, kind of data set by data set in terms of how big is your block size and, and, and all of the rest of that sort of stuff, because the underlying disks dictate that the type of workload dictates the type of block size that you might want. All of that stuff is, you know, there's too much to get into it. it you can't just use it. You can use a generic setup, but it's not advisable. Okay. So it sounds like the vast majority of people here are doing things in their home uh, one guy's doing it at work. So what would you recommend for the typical home user that let's say they have 50 terabytes or less of storage, let's say it's a single server and let's say they're doing mostly storing media, you know, an occasional file sharing between family members. What, what, what makes good sense there? What are you looking for? So I look for how, how important is, is this and how replaceable is the data? Are you, are you backing up any of it or not? Uh, because for example, you can get a raid away with a, a raid Z if you are only three or four disks wide, and uh, the 
the information is not mission critical because if you do blow that third, you know, that second disc or third disc, depending on how, how, whether it's RAID Z or RAID Z2, you know, there is some risk there. You have to accept the fact that there's some risk, but you're also trying to maximize the amount of, of storage that you have. So at the end of the day, if it's, if it's kind of sensitive, you definitely should be doing mirrors. If it's really, really sensitive, you probably should be doing something like mirrored stripes or doing mirror with hot spare. And in terms of the, the block size, that doesn't matter so much with, with the type of application. Cause essentially you're using, if you're streaming data or whatever you're, you're sending it out over at Samba or NFS or something like that. And so maybe you want to put a log drive or an L2 arc in there to kind of help you out so that if you're writing to it, if you're streaming it, you don't need the log drive. The log, the purpose of the log drive is if I'm writing to data, um, how do I unjam myself? Cause essentially like ZFS is only going to send a sync, uh, or a flush after a certain amount of data has passed. And so if you have a log drive, that's faster, what will happen is it'll spool up the information and then write it out to the slower disks as possible, but it'll okay. allow the right process to, to be finished. Whereas if you're waiting for spinning rust, waiting for ZFS to come back and say, yes, I've written the data can like really slow you down. So okay. it really depends on like, okay, I am file sharing, but am I like, are people writing to my drive? Is it, do I have three or four people trying to write to this simultaneously over the network? Then maybe you need a log drive. Excuse my ignorance. What is an L2 arc? So the L2 arc is uh, an extended cache. When you, when you're reading ZFS puts stuff into the arc, which is the adaptive replacement cache. What that's meant to do is if you're, if you're hitting a certain number of files fairly frequently, there's some algorithm that is, is going to put that into RAM so it's easier for it to retrieve. When when the arc fills up and you have an L2 arc on a faster thing, it's kind of like the spillover. So it's it's a way to give your system more room for to hold the most frequently accessed files so that it, it accesses them off of faster medium instead of instead of off your spinning disk. So it's kind of a way for the computer to decide how to split up your system. Like in the old days, what we used to do is decide this had to go on fast disk, this has to go on slow disk. And what the purpose of the arc is, is that ZFS is keeping track of how, how much these things are being accessed and it moves the data onto the arc or off of the arc based on how much, how frequently they're being accessed. And, and how do you set that up? So when you, you can add uh, an L2 arc after the like after the fact you don't have to do this during during the creation essentially there's a, a a few commands that you can use that allow you to add them like add a disk either the logs or the l2 arc after like post i want to go back to patrick and i want to ask him uh, a little bit about how you set up your z pool yeah i uh, had a raid z2 that was uh 12 disks wide but since I've set it up that way, I've got some other ideas. I did it as a large pool. It was really wide because I wanted it to be fast for the for us to pull video off of. So as people are editing video, they'd be able to pull in the different assets that you needed. But the problem that I have is I've got seven different ministries all using the same uh, Z pool. And we create about two terabytes of data a week My right goodness. now. 
And so that's a hundred terabytes a year. So we're spending a lot of time trying to get data off of there as fast as we can. And one of the problems that I run into is that if we ever get full, we're going to go read only and people are creating large files to build and edit and everything to make some of their content. And then if we don't get it off fast enough, I could actually have the whole the whole church go read only if I don't keep it cleared up. So one of my plans in the future is to buy some more drives, split us up, and get most of the people kind of in their own island so that I don't end up with the problem of the whole church going read only. And where do you and where do you put the data as you're pulling it off the server? Are you just deleting it? Oh, no, we uh, we archive that in what we call the JBOD archive. It's just a bunch of disks. So the JBOD archive, I've got 32 disks that are uh, formatted as extended fat, and we just copy the data onto there so that we can put it. There's a lot of times where we'll go back and we'll be doing another sermon series, and uh, we'll take some of that content that we created before and reuse it so they uh they don't want to throw anything away so we keep all of that in uh archive okay and and why extended fat not ext4 not zfs extended fat that's an interesting choice well the big reason for that is that it, it makes it act like a great big thumb drive and so we got these little docs that people could set by their desk and before i bought a 60 drive 45 drive server that I could stick them all in to spin them up where they were live. Mm-hmm. People actually had docs and we had a search engine built that allowed people to go and find w- where the files were they need and go pick the archive up and stick it on. And it was cross-platform. Whether you're on Linux, Windows, or Mac, you were able to just stick a drive in, hook it to your machine, and you had a 16-terabyte thumb drive, basically, that was connected That's to so your cool. computer. So that was why extended that was to chosen okay so it's and now now i've got them in this jbot archive where they're read only and if anybody's doing that uh little pro tip i i figured it out about 1 30 in the morning last night is that you can read only the drives but if you don't read only the file system then a lot of your files just won't show up on the, the mac os operating system finder won't find them hmm didn't know that. So you have to set the file system to read only. Now, now this is where I'm going to dig back into the web UI versus you command line gurus. How do you how do you go about setting up and maintaining user access and control? So does everybody in your family have, you know, their own account? And how do you set all of that up, Steve? I have a guest account that's read only, and that's where everything gets shared to because pretty much there's one pipeline to write information to the disks. So. If you're, for example, updating the photo album that's synced over Nextcloud and that comes in via Nextcloud as opposed to somebody going mm. onto the disk and, and doing it that way. And so there, there's a pipeline, which I would recommend for everybody, determine a pipeline. Don't just have a kind of a scattershot approach. You need to know which way the data is flowing throughout your system in order to make sure that you have less oopsies. So you have that, that, that data flow set up insofar as all of the servers are doing the writing and then you're just creating accounts on the server. So for instance, maybe your wife or your kids have access to Nextcloud. They're welcome to upload data there, but the real backend storage of Nextcloud actually terminates on your file server. Correct. Wow, what right. a clever idea. 
So the interface to the pictures, to the videos, to all that sort of stuff is, in our case, it's, it's Nextcloud and a couple of other things where these things have permission to write and then the, but nobody actually has permission to go in and, and do anything to the server itself. You there, like I said, there's a read only user so that, for example, if we're sharing out files, I can or like videos mm -hmm. or pictures to Plex. I don't want Plex, uh, like our extended family uses Plex. And so we've got a lot of people that are in our home group and I don't want somebody to be like, oops, I'm sorry, I deleted your thing. Yeah. Um, so Plex does not get any kind of right access. Um, and so in general, it's it's all about controlling the flow and knowing, okay, I these types of people need to have read only and these types of people in this flow, and it's not even people, it's this type of process can write to the file system. Right. I want to turn it back over to Kenny and Peter for a second. How do you guys set up your uh, RAID Z pools and how do you deal with user permissions? Uh, yeah. So again, like I say, mine's <clears throat> pretty simple. Uh, so I use just the built-in user management inside of uh, the TrueNAS UI. So uh, since it's really just myself uh, on that network uh, using that resource, uh, I just have a single user set up for myself and that has access to uh, two different data sets on a RAID Z1 pool. Mm -hmm. uh, one for uh, general storage. So that's documents, uh, just general uh, things that I want to save that aren't necessarily media. Mm -hmm. uh, and then second one being a media pool. Uh, and that is really how I do the user creation and management is through there. So there's not a whole lot to it. It's pretty simple approach. Any particular reason you went with RAID Z1? Uh, just cost efficiency. I didn't want to have to buy that fourth drive to be able to do a RAID Z2 um, okay. or, uh, and or to do a RAID Z2 or uh, also you get a little bit more storage. I think if you do just the RAID Z1, you get two drives. Uh, you get the capacity of two drives. So I could get up to, I think it was 32 terabytes is what I got right now. And you've now. got three drives in your array. Correct, yep. Okay. And Peter, same question. How do you set up your RAID Z pool and how do you deal with user management? Okay, so on my two storage servers, I've got uh, my media pool, which is less important, and their RAID Z1 pools of four eight terabyte drives. Mm -hmm. So that gives me 24 terabytes per server. Um, and then my more important stuff on my data pool is mirrored pairs, and one server has four six terabyte drives, and the other one has two two terabyte drives and two 10 terabyte drives. And then I just create the user on the command line for... Uh, Samba, and then I use for m some of my more permanent connections between servers and stuff, I use uh, NFS. Okay. So do you have NFS and Samba running on the same data set? Yep. Okay. Have you ever had any problems with locking or anything like that? Nope. Is, I mean, granted, I mean, ZFS is taking care of both, so. Right. Yeah, yeah. So. Steve, I want to bring you into this. Have you ever seen Samba and NFS on the same data set? And do you see any problems with doing it that way? In fact, I think you do all NFS, don't you? I do. I'm not a huge fan of Samba. I mean, it's okay. It, it definitely has served its purpose in the past for me. But especially with, uh, I know all the haters out there are going to hate this, but with the addition of System D in the FS tab, where it basically, it gives you auto, auto FS, except in my opinion, better. When that was a thing that I discovered, I immediately got rid of all of Samba, with one exception because the I have one media player in the house for whatever reason just doesn't like the NFS. You share the same data out over Samba and call it a day. 
Yep. So, Patrick, I want to go to you and I want to talk to you a little bit. How do you handle, because you by far have the most users out of anybody, I think. How are you dealing with user management and are you using Samba, NFS or both? We're just using Samba and for the main allowing people to access it, we're using Active Directory and we got Active Directory integrations already set up. That that was where we paid 45 drives to come in and help us with all the Active Directory integration. And, and, and so, yeah, everything is just Samba. How about us. how about interconnecting servers? So you want to connect two servers together, you want to have a distributed file system, or you just want to sync between the two. What's your favorite way to connect two servers together to move a bunch of data? Well, like I said, we've got the 10 gigabit fabric that connects between all our switches. And so most of my... Uh, servers are connected with a uh, 10 gigabit link to the network, except I've, I've got some true NAS minis that have a one gigabit link. Uh-huh. The backup servers, I really don't need it moving the data across quite so fast most of the time, mm. you know, cause they're, they're just catching the changes, but wire guards incredible for the offsite one. Yeah. We, talk we a little bit up. about that. Yeah. Wire guard. Uh, we're able to have, uh, a config file that is on my main file server and a config file that's on my offsite file server. And what I like about it is there's no other network connected way to island hop from from my network to my backup server that's sitting offsite at uh, a data center in Grand Forks. And, uh, and, and that guy just connects in and reaches in and grabs the data and pulls it back. So you know, as far as trying to keep people from being able to de- delete your backups when they can't figure out where they're at and they can't connect to them, because uh, we just use SSH keys and, and only in one direction. So there's no connection that my my box can make to the backup server, mm. uh, you know, makes you feel a lot better about, you know, how, how your backups are done and whether the data will be there if you get ransomware. So, Peter, I'll ask you kind of, Similar question. How, how, how would you connect two servers together? What's your favorite way to say if you wanted to send a bunch of information from one server to the other? So I might two my two storage servers both have dual 10 gigabit fiber connections. Okay. Uh, one of which gets it out to the network. And then the other one is a direct fiber connect to the V host. Okay. Patrick, you, uh, I didn't ask, you said it was 10 gig. Is it ethernet or is it fiber? I actually do three different types. I I use direct attach copper when it's small runs, and that's where the SFPs connect directly to the copper wire on both sides, and there's no connector to disconnect. So they're like 10 to 30 foot long, some as short as two foot long, and uh, and they just save having different connectors and, and changing media types. The uh, fiber we use quite a bit to go long longer distances and then if I've I started using a lot of these uh, they got the SFPs which are uh, these modules that allow you to change whether you're doing direct attached copper fiber or or cat 6 but you can run 10 gig across cat 6 as long as you're below 30 feet but second last question I guess does anybody here, I'm going to open the entire floor, anybody here use encryption on their data sets? I, I, my plan is to get it set up on my data pool. Okay. And 
uh, you're going to use Z- native ZFS encryption. Yes. And are you going to store the key on the server so that when the server boots up, it just automatically decrypts the database? Or are you going to have it so where you manually load the key each time? I probably will have it where I have to manually load the key. Okay. So that's currently how my, so my primary server right now is set up without encryption on the, on the, on the, on the pool. And my rationale behind that is it's on 24 seven, 365. If somebody wanted the key, you just walk into the house and once you get physical access to it, you're going to dump it out of memory. So I'm not stopping anyone. The backup of that same server though is encrypted. ZFS does have encryption. My idea there is it's off most of the time. Oh, by the way, it sits inside of a public place. So if somebody gets a hold of the case, they're sitting on a bunch of useless data. So, and one of the things I've really appreciated is ZFS makes it crazy, stupid, simple to attach and disattach keys. So you can have a number of data sets that are there and you can just load the keys and say, I want this data set available, load the key, get the data off and then unmount it. Alan Jude does this with all of his billing. So all of the credit card numbers and stuff that he does once a month, it's all stored on a little flash drive, the keys, and he plugs it in. All the data is on his server, but he plugs the flash drive in, loads the keys, loads all the credit card numbers, processes all the transactions, then unloads the keys and pulls the drive back out, and it sits that way for the next month. So it's encryption in ZFS, I wouldn't say it's brand new. It's been around for a little bit, but it is newer, uh, you know, within the last few years. And and so, so I've just started to play with it, and I'm, I'm really happy with it so far. I am still learning where the bones are buried. So far, I'm pleasantly surprised. Last thing I want to talk about is you uh, competing with the cloud. So... I'll start with you, Steve. If does Have you ever had a conversation with your wife or anybody in your family where you said, this is why I want to do local storage as opposed to paying for cloud storage? I mean, I have, I have conversations with my wife a lot about just around education. Like, you really shouldn't back that up in the cloud or, you know, the, this sort of stuff is probably not ideal. And because the way that our household is set up, if I make a decision to, you know, if I say hey, I want to spend some money on the server and this is how much. She doesn't care what it is, right? There's no competition over that. It's once the funds are released, then they're released. And so there isn't much of a competition against the cloud Mm -hmm. in so much as that. It's more like, hey, you could just back up your pictures to NextCloud and then they'll be there and I will back them up and you don't have to worry about increasing your iCloud storage or anything like that. Those are the types of conversations that I have. I'll ask Patrick, did you ever come across the conversation with your church when you went to them? So I have a meeting at the end of the year with our executive pastor and our tech director. And as part of that meeting, I go through and say like, here's what I've done for the year. Here's what I think we should do next year. Here's what I think we should spend money on that sort of thing. One of the things I've gotten back a lot is, well, look at how cheap cloud storage is. Why wouldn't we use cloud storage? Have you had that conversation? And if so, how did it go? I explained to them at the velocity that we create data, we wouldn't be able to get this week's data into the cloud before we had to get next week's data into the cloud. And so that kind of, you know, we would have had to pay a lot more to get a lot higher speed connection. And then if we ever did have the bad day and we needed our data back, how long is it going to take to get it back and online? And that's where the JBOD archive come in. The fact that I could walk over and pull 16 terabytes out of a box, carry it to my desk and plug it in. And I had, you know, all of 2016 right there. That kind of made it real easy to, 
it costs us about $88 a terabyte to do the JBOD archive. And you compare that to cloud storage, you'd be hard pressed to, to do that. So, Steve, I asked in the room here with Kenny and Peter, I said, either one of you is closed, both of them shake their heads. Peter actually doesn't even know what cloud is. He's like, cloud, you mean like NextCloud? I run NextCloud. I self-host. He's so self-hosted, the cloud doesn't mean anything to him. You're probably the only one, I think, that's using cloud, but you're not using like Dropbox, you know, or Google Drive. You're using SpiderOak. SpiderOak's an interesting choice. Why do you choose SpiderOak? What does it do for you? And are you concerned about the privacy aspect at all? They encrypt the the data before it goes up there, and it's a zero-knowledge encryption service. So that means if I lose my password, the data is garbage. So um, ultimately, I, I put some trust in them. Red Hat uses them. I've been using them longer than, than Red Hat um, had been using SpiderOak. But ultimately, I was comfortable with the, with the privacy story. I, I don't know how, much, how better to put that. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things like... If it's encrypted client side and they can't recover my key and my entire system is hosed if I lose, like if I forget my master password, that gives me some level of confidence that, uh, yes. you know, but when it, even if it, even if that happens, even on my next cloud, if there is something that I find uh, particularly sensitive, IGPG encrypted before it goes to next cloud. And then that gets encrypted again, once it goes out to spider Oak. So I I still take individual files seriously. Before we wrap, I just want to open the entire floor and ask, is there anything that I should have asked or anything that you have come across in your storage journey that you would go back and tell you as you're getting started? Like, I wish I'd have known that when I started. Don't use software raid. Don't use soft. Okay, that's an interesting one. So don't use software raid. I've heard a lot of people say don't use hardware raid. You would say don't use software raid. Would you? So far as like MD raid, like I I don't. I suppose ZFS is software raid to to some extent. But I'm I'm thinking. No, I'm I'm thinking like MD raid and stuff like that. That that's bit me more than a few times. Okay, I would say if your ZFS package isn't built into the kernel, uh, maybe think twice about that caused you some heartache. I really appreciate the time that you guys have put in. You've all taken a separate journey. We've all kind of arrived roughly at the same place. I mean, we're all sitting on ZFS of some sort, so that tells you something. All the all the people <laughs> came to the same place to store their files, so that tells you something. Um, but it, it's been a great discussion. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Noah. Uh, a huge thanks to all of the storage roundtable people uh, for joining us. Steve, anything we got to cover before we get out of here? Nope. I think that uh, covered it very nicely. I was happy to see that my answer tonight was the same thing on the storage. I, you know what? When you started talking about it, I was like, we're going to get into that. But it's okay. It's good. It's all good. Uh, we do the show every Tuesday. You can find it at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux 7. This is the show at Ask Noah Show. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central, live, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.